This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation, reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality through grant-making, education, media, and leadership initiatives. Welcome to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Seeds are the great lineage between all of our ancestors and their stewardship of place and terroir and scent and what they were selecting for, for all of our future generations. Today we are speaking with Sephra Alexandra. Sephra, the seed huntress, is on a perennial ethnobotanical expedition to conserve the biodiversity of our farms and forests by safeguarding the world's seeds. As a Gene Bank Impacts Fellow for the Crop Trust, she has gathered stories of the importance of utilization and sharing of plant genetic resource to adapt to changing climate conditions. She has established community seed banks on island nations after natural disasters to fortify a regenerative model of resiliency, which supports food and nutritional diversity through seed sovereignty. In her home state of Connecticut, she is reviving a once prolific alien heirloom to promote stewardship of the historic agrarian landscape. She holds her master's in agroecological education from Cornell University is a wilderness skills instructor, member of the Explorers Club, and is designing a treehouse near Hot Spring as a budding oologist. Well, hello, Sephra, and thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. And in preparing for this interview, I was so overwhelmed by all the different threads that weave together seed diversity and sovereignty, and so I look forward to delving into as much as possible with you. It's a pleasure to be here, and amongst a fellow ecological steward and in the most positive sense, warrior for goodness for the earth. So it's a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you. When we think about extinction, seeds are not typically what comes to mind. However, the loss of seed diversity is absolutely staggering. For example, the last time the United States government studied seed diversity in 1983 It found 28 varieties of cabbage down from 544. Cauliflower had dwindled from 158 varieties to 9, and beets from 288 to 17. And it's not just the U.S. that's experiencing this silent seed extinction. China has lost over 90% of their native wheat varieties, and Mexico has lost 80% of their varieties of maize. So to begin... I'm hoping you can share a little bit more about how this global phenomenon gives context to you and to your title as the seed huntress. Well, I call myself the seed huntress and I say I'm on the hunt to preserve the biodiversity of our earth. And I think where that stems from is exactly what you just said. 
a lot of people focus on the fauna extinction, but if we look from a floral perspective, as with our cultivated vegetables and heirlooms, like you just mentioned, a statistic of over 97% of these varieties have been lost because people are no longer stewarding these varieties in, in their homes and in their gardens. My personal lineage, I come from many, many generations of seed stewards. I, I just read a biography recently of my ancestors and my great, great, great grandfather in Salak, Russia, was a seed seller to the peasant farmers there. And then when we came over to America after a few generations in Connecticut now, my grandfather had a grain company in Norwich, Connecticut as well. So uh, I find in my epigenetics, my family has been doing this work of saving seeds and sharing seeds. So my great mentor says that we're the people of the pinch in a pinch of time in our genetic biodiversity when we're watching this massive genetic erosion and we can either stand by and watch it happen or step in as stewards and caretakers. So I've leaned in and kind of like the Forrest Gump of seeds have gotten involved with seed banks and seed vaults and seed libraries and seed bank fortification after natural disasters, just going into every tributary I can find to help safeguard these ancient embryos. You know, seeds are the great lineage between all of our ancestors and their stewardship of place and terroir and scent and what they were selecting for, um, for all of our future generations. So it's been, it's been a pleasure to work with seeds and I continue to learn from them with each project I do. In 1903, Seed Catalogs offered American farmers a choice of 370 varieties of sweet corn, and today just 12 of those varieties are still commercially available. These numbers are so shocking, so I feel like your work is incredibly important. And I was also recently uh, reading a passage from Chilean agronomist Miguel Altieri, and he said, quote, in a handful of wild seeds taken from any one natural community, there is hidden the distillation of millions of years of coevolution of plants and animals, the living reverberations of how past cultures selected plant characters that reflected their human sense of taste, color, proportion, and fitness in a particular environment, end quote. And this passage really alludes to the powerful ritual that is seed saving. So can you share more about the implication of buying seeds versus collecting or hunting seeds? And what culture are we reinvigorating and maintaining through sustained seed saving? So let's look back at our seed catalogs, right? I think for me, understanding that heirlooms are no longer being safeguarded really where they're from in a lot of instances, that's what inspired me to revive what was once a prolific allium heirloom of where I'm from, Southport, Connecticut. It was called the Southport Globe Onion. And back in the 1800s, every hill, valley, nook of where I'm from was all in onion cultivation. We were called the onion capital of the world, and almost 200,000 barrels of onions were sent each year on sloops, which are sailboats along the beautiful Long Island Sound to the New York City markets. They were pickled and used to prevent scurvy with the with the Union Army. And I looked back at that agrarian history, and I looked now to what in Connecticut is often a very lawns, not food culture. And I said, 
what can I do to inspire people to re-embrace the ancient art of seed saving? And what I found was this beautiful lineage of the onions was such a great tie to our agrarian past that a wonderful seed company, Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds, was still maintaining the Southport Globe onion variety. But no one had planted it back where it was from in its local terroir in 130 years. So I started the Southport Globe Onion Initiative. And this year, because alliums are biennial, so it takes two years for them to produce seed, we were able to harvest the seed. And I've just been freely distributing them. I never charge anyone for seed. My entire purpose of growing these seeds is for education and for community building. And so what it's really done is it's brought the kids from the local schools, the wonderful ladies from the garden clubs, I mean, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, all of these wonderful people have come out in the community who really didn't have any sort of a connection to any sort of gardening or even ecology or seed stewardship. And because I was able to connect it back to the history of our place, there was a blight that actually wiped out the onions and all of the onion warehouses then became speakeasy prohibition bars the likes of which Fitzgerald, when he was writing The Great Gatsby, would go and spend time in. So there's there's a wonderful history before and after that. But what we were able to do is then reshare these seeds. And now these onions are back and everyone's talking about them. And we have an annual festival and kids are excited about it. And so I say this just merely as a way that oftentimes when we're talking about a lot of the pessimism that surrounds what's going on with agriculture and climate and all these different things, I like to say that it's too late to be pessimistic. And there's the ROI of seeds. You know, you take one seed and you get thousands. And so I think it's really positive and a really great ritual in the most agrarian and non-denominational sense to re-participate and re-inspire those around you. So it would be negligent to have this conversation without bringing up the ecological and climactic changes we're facing So why is it imperative that we maintain seed diversity as a means of resistance against changing plant diseases and weather patterns, more so than focusing on genetically engineered seeds? So shouldn't we be focusing on diversity when it comes to protecting a global food supply? So this year I've had um, the honor and privilege of being a GeneBank Impacts Fellow for the Crop Trust. And the Crop Trust is a small organization based in Germany that basically oversees the standards and operating procedures of our global seed banking system. A seed bank is what is known as an ex-situ. So when seeds are growing in place where they're from, that's in-situ. When they're stored and conserved away from that, that's ex-situ conservation. So there are namely 12 large CGIAR gene banks around the world. And if you know who Nikolai Vavilov is, he was one of the pioneers of this seed banking concept, realizing that the diversity around the world, these plant genetic resources, as they're known in the scientific community, really are the arcs of diversity and hold the great genetic material that inherently are our greatest tools of resilience because they have the ability to adapt. If you're saving seeds from hot and dry or wet and cold or all these different uh, variations of climate, when you save that genetic resource, then whichever ways our climate shift or go into succession, you'll have that resource to be able to rebreed varieties that are adaptable to those areas. 
So Nikolai Vavilov went around and gathered all of this plant genetic resource and mapped out what he called centers of origin. Centers of origin speak to where crops first emerge in the globe is where they express greatest amounts of diversity. So if we look at wheat and maize in Mexico, you know, 150,000 varieties, potatoes in Peru, pulses and grains in India, we can start to look at our global map as where these crops first emerged. So that's where these large seed banks sit. As a Gene Bank Impacts Fellow, we were sent out to go gather an impact story that really showed what, what the importance of what these seed banks or gene banks are doing. So I was sent to CPACT, which is the Center for Pacific Crops and Trees, which is part of the Pacific community, based in Fiji. It's also the world center of taro. So taro is an aeroid, which is basically like a root crop, and it has that large elephant ear leaf considered um, an ancestor to the Hawaiian people. It's part of their creation myth. They call it kalo there, or a prestige cultural totem. A prestige crop uh, is called as such when it's so vital to a culture. It's used in gift-giving for births, marriages, deaths, king's coronation. It's such um, an intrinsic and vital part of the community that its loss would basically not only be a cultural loss, uh, would not only be undermining their food systems, but also a loss of a huge part of their culture. So unfortunately, in 1993, the taro leaf blight came ashore on the island nation of Samoa. And within a six-month period, all of their taro was completely decimated. Even though morphologically or visually, the taro that they had maybe looked differently, because those types of plants in those areas are clonally propagated, their actual genetic diversity was it was rather narrow, and so they were they were all susceptible to this blight. What happened after that was these ethnobotanical explorers went back out to the different centers of diversity around the world and regathered plant material that showed natural resistance to this blight. For example, taro leaf blight is always present in Bangkok, and so they were able to gather taro from Bangkok and. All of this genetic material was then sent to the seed bank, or this actually formed the seed bank in Fiji, so that the material could then be virus indexed, characterized, and then distributed to breeders in Samoa. Now, why this is important is if you gather the diversity, it needs to be maintained, right? So that you can continually, when you maintain it in vitro, it means in those little vials, it means that you're able to keep on multiplying and duplicating it. When we think of seeds, we think of orthodox seeds. We think of, you know, tomato seeds, pepper seeds, those dried, hard, beautiful embryos. But oftentimes in the tropics, they're recalcitrant seeds. So they need to be kept as living plantlets. So the moral of this story is these plants were then virus indexed so that what they were sending out to the breeders, they ensured it didn't have any other blights or any other diseases that they were spreading. And the breeders then, after 10 years, were able to breed blight-resistant lines of taro and able to re-propagate all of the fields of Samoa. They were breeding for yield and for palatability. And then after they had bred those blight-resistant lines, they were then sent back to the gene bank in Fiji so that Nigeria in 2011, when they faced that same blight, could access those varieties and be able to re-propagate their fields without that 10-year breeding time. The reason why this is important is because you're preventing basically 
possible starvation or famine. When taro is the 14th most eaten vegetable in the world, especially in many subsistence farming nations. And when you lose that, you lose your your ability to have food security. So why preserving global seed diversity is so important is we never know what pest will arrive on what shore or which climactic variation, what your land, which way it'll swing. So when we maintain all of these arcs of diversity that have that inherent genetic material that's been selected and stewarded in its place for all of those different variations, the breeders are able to have basically their painter's palette to be able to breed new lines to adapt to whatever happens. And when it comes to seed saving, there is much to be said in relation to the effectiveness of ex situ versus in situ conservation. And like you were just explaining, ex situ means seeds that are stored long term in cold storage conservation facilities like the Millennium Seed Bank, which houses nearly 2 billion seeds currently. And in situ referring to the stewards who plant crops and save the seeds for the next season. And I think about Martine Prechtel, who once wrote, it's not enough to save heritage seeds. The culture of those people to whom each seed belongs must be kept alive along with seeds and their cultivation, not in freezers or museums, but in their own soil and our daily lives, end quote. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on these methods and if there is a necessary balance to be found given the precarious times we are in. And you were mentioning that with the taro, but even if you could expand that into other species and kind of even the um, ethics behind it. Absolutely. And um, Martin Prechtel is, I'm, I'm so glad that you quoted him. Ultimately, in seed conservation, in situ, in the soil, is the preferable method. Sometimes people say a seed bank is like a dusty old library, you know, um, which I can understand where they're coming from, but in the face of man-made and natural disasters, it's imperative that we do have that backup. Of course, in situ, in the soil, the seeds are able to continually be adapting to the new climate, to their new soil structures, to pests. They stay vibrant and relevant and their vigor and their yield and their steward and caretaken in place by those, you know, that are growing them. That is the ultimate goal. But for example, if we go back to the crop trust, which also maybe you've heard of Svalbard, which is the global seed vault, it's a backup for all of those seed banks to store their seeds in cases of man-made or natural disaster. If we look at Syria in 2015, when they had the civil war, they were unable to get back to their gene bank in Aleppo. Now, what they have stored there is ancient wheats that have been stewarded for thousands of years. So what they were able to do is they were able to take those seeds out of the vault and re-multiply them. They moved their gene bank, which is the International Center for Agricultural Research in Dry Areas, to Beirut. So having that backup was imperative so that they could take those seeds out, re-multiply them, keep them relevant, and then be able to re-safeguard them back in the vault. So the, the combination of those two types of conservation is so important in the kind of the challenges that we're facing in, in the modern day. So ex situ conservation is actually an amazing global resource. There's an international treaty called the International Treaty for Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture, which was championed by the FAO in 2004. And 
what this treaty basically allows is for any country underneath this treaty, any seeds that are stored in their seed banks can be freely accessed by farmers and breeders and scientists so that they're able to adapt to these different changing climates. When we look at the access and the benefits of being able to share these seeds on a global scale, then we can really start to see the behoovement of preserving this biodiversity and basically a global resilience that can be formed around shared access to this. But again, as in my other work, of course, having these seeds be in the soil where they're from is preferable as long as that soil and that can be safeguarded and protected. that you traveled to Haiti in the aftermath of Hurricane Matthew in 2016. So I'd like to transition to a conversation around disaster response, seed relief, and the impact these programs can have on local agroeconomic systems. Can you share with us what are the problems with exported seed relief as a form of disaster response, as well as the importance of seed banks and seed sovereignty in the aftermath of emergency? So... My twin brother has a company called Tactivate, and he works with special operations veterans and entrepreneurs to find boots on the ground solutions in the aftermath of natural disasters. And I've helped him on several deployments. And after the 2016 hurricane in Haiti, I stayed on to meet with a lot of the agroecological pioneers and leaders of Haiti. And they are just the most elegant, lovely, and wonderful people I met this elder grandmother who's literally laid in front of bulldozers to protect her family's land and these revolutionaries and who've led the burning of GMO seeds when they were donated to the island and finally found this lovely agronomist, Ilie Saint-Magloire at the Organization for the Rehabilitation of the Environment, who has really a lot of the infrastructure needed to have a community seed bank, but didn't quite have the funding. Now, the importance of having a local community seed bank in these areas is that after these storms went through, which happens unfortunately quite frequently down there and in other island nations, what happens is there's no backup because most of the extra seed is either kept in local houses or in times of scarcity is is eaten and isn't saved as a backup seed crop. So what a lot of foreign aid does is they like to 
send down seed as not only foodstuffs, but to, to replant fields. And what that actually does that I've seen is not only not beneficial, but actually detrimental to the agroeconomic systems there. For example, what Haitians often call Miami rice is when rice is donated down to the island. Now, growers in the north still have viable seed, have viable rice that could be sold. And But when free rice is flown in, no one buys rice from the north. So you're cutting you're undercutting the local agronomic system, which actually does more harm than good for their economy and their own recovery because you are relying on external relief. It also introduces pests and it's often not viable seed that isn't adapted to the local climate and the local pests. So what a much more closed loop regenerative solution to that is, is you have a community seed bank that backs up these land race varieties that have been selected and stewarded in these soils for many, many generations so that when the fields are wiped out, they're able to go to a local resource that has a backup so that they can replant their fields immediately. I think the most important thing in disaster response is being able to have self-facilitated resilience and not relying on external aid. Oftentimes when you rely on external aid, they'll be sending down non-viable seed that oftentimes be introducing new pests. And it's also undercutting, let's say, the rice farmers up north in Haiti that now no one's paying for their seed because everyone's relying and waiting on free donated seed, which undercuts their agroeconomic system. And so it's really an unsustainable cycle and a paradigm that needs to be shifted. So the fortification of the seed bank allows for food security and the availability of nutritional diversity through seed sovereignty. So it's really been lovely to work with the Haitian people and um, protect these vital embryos so that they can have food regardless of what's going on um, with civil unrest or natural disasters. Mm -hmm. Seed oligarchies and industrial scale companies have emerged as a fairly recent threat For example, 50 years ago, about 1,000 small seed companies were operating in the United States. But by 2009, there were less than 100. In terms of global proprietary seed sales, four companies control over 60% of the global seed supply. So how can we democratize our seed system? And why is it important that in the face of these corporate seed giants like Bayer and Corteva, that we all become seed stewards, regardless of our familiarity with farming or gardening? I think a common misconception is that just because these seeds conglomerations have all of this control, what they don't have is bioregionally adapted seed. And I can go into explain what that means further. But if you have access to seed, right, even when we think about our local farmers, and they do such an amazing job. But when you're still buying seed from a seed catalog that's in Ohio, what happens when you lose access to be able to buy seed from them? You're not able to replant your fields. So a really important part about seed stewardship is closing the loop. And as we look at watersheds, we need to start thinking about seed sheds. So the greatest way, in a very respectful sense, to undermine these massive seed companies is to start saving seeds in your local areas. So if we look, 
at our planet, right? We have ecozones, and there's eight major ecozones, and this is the broadest biogeographic distinctions that we have, and it's the distribution patterns of terrestrial organisms. And then we have our bioregions, and there's about 867. And bioregions are when we can look at our global map, looking at it ecologically and geographically defined areas by natural areas versus man-made divisions. So when you're looking at countries and states, those are kind of arbitrarily drawn lines. But when we look at our bioregions, it's based on ecologically delineated areas. And even between bioregions, you have these biotones and transition zones. And even smaller than that, we look at our ecoregions. Now here in Connecticut, I, in my part of Connecticut, that extends up to New York. We're in ecoregion 59. So ecoregions then are these distinct assemblages of natural communities, right? And within those natural communities, we have these biomes, which are the distinct biological communities within those natural communities. And then we can get even smaller down to ecotones, right? And these are these transition areas when we look at the different soil compositions that happen within these different habitats. So when we kind of look ecologically down through that lens, we can start to see that that is the level where we want to be saving seeds. This summer when I was in Idaho, I was working doing native wild seed collection and we were doing ecotype specific seed collection because for these endangered species that if these very specific habitats got wiped out, these plants would no longer exist, and also for agroecological restoration. Because after wildfires, you can't just plant any sage back there. You have to plant, of the 33 varieties or so, the one that's specific to that area. Because just as humans steward heirlooms, so do our entomological, you know, the insects and the birds, they've been stewarding these heirlooms forever as well. They're also the seed stewards, right? There's all the different auckeries, which are these great words of zoochery, which is the travel of seed by animal, or mermockery by ant, or anthropochery, which is by humans. So what this huge conversation is saying is the power is really in our hands as seed stewards. The greatest tools of resilience that we have is all saving seeds. And if we do that on an eco-regional and bio-regional scale, then we don't have to rely on these monolithic monocultures, because ultimately, the seeds that they have when you plant in these massive monocultures, as often happens, is they're extremely susceptible to any pests or anything that comes into those systems, right? When we look, as I know you've talked about on different podcasts, when we look to perennial systems, right, edible forest gardens, and um, we look to the mycelial network that helps share the nutrients amongst these diverse guilds, we can see that strength and resilience in an ecology comes from diversity. And even more so, so an ecotype, right, would be the specific plants found in those ecotones that I mentioned. So the greatest things that we can be doing for, let's say, our pollinators is that we save ecotype-specific seeds from our local ecoregions, and those are the seeds that we're saving and regenerating for native plant materials development. And that's when we can proliferate these pollinator pathways that are really doing the great work that we want to do. So these big questions about seed corporations, I say joyfully and gratefully, the power is in our hands. And when we can look around and we can see that these seeds are everywhere, these ancient embryos that have been regenerating themselves from time immemorial, we say we need to all 
be saving the seeds from where we are because instead of repatriation, we talk about rematriation because often the seeds are kept in the female lineage, like, like with the human form. That's how all the seeds that I carry were in my mom and my grandmother. And you can look down that line. And if we look to how we have a regenerative ecological system, a closed loop system, then we all need to be re-embracing this art of seed saving. Yeah, we need to get away from this age of eradication to an age of regeneration and one that celebrates biodiversity. So instead of doom and gloom, my friends, just look around and start saving the beautiful seeds that are right where you are, right in your local terroir, so we can all be terroirers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. What I love about seed saving is we are engaging with so much beauty and intelligence and connection when we're working with plants and seeds. And I know that my journey with working with plants has brought me into such deeper connection to the work and to the bigger issues of the world in a way that feels, yeah, just connective. And so I really love hearing that. Thank you. I'm also thinking about the more than human world, the insect kin and wild winds that serve as seed stewards. And I'm curious how these relations play a role in your restoration work. How does the preservation of wild landscapes and entire ecosystems play a role in maintaining seed dispersal? So when we're caretaking these wild lands and these ecotypes for the heirlooms that our insect friends have been stewarding and that the wind has been stewarding, and a mockery is another one of the ockeries. And we think of the pappus, which are those floating, whirling dervish seeds of the dandelion, we start to see that that's how these wild landscapes get propagated. And then people get into the conversations of invasive species, and there's a million tributaries we could paddle our canoe down here. But I think what's really important is to look at the wild lands that, let's say, traditional ecological knowledge used to harvest from, you know, these indigenous cultures. If we look out to the prairies, there is um, something called Timsala, the prairie turnip, Pediomelum esculentum, right? And this is a staple food crop of the Plains Indians that grows without any input and was this prolific, prolific foodstuff. I think when we look to our wild lands, instead of looking at destructive agriculture, because as we know, it's the single most destructive thing that we do to our landscape, we need to be tenders of the wild. I am um, studied with Tom Brown Jr., who has the tracker school and comes from a lineage of studying with Stalking Wolf, who was an Apache scout that he called grandfather from the time he was seven years old. And that entire lineage speaks to how we work with nature rather than against it, that everything we could ever need to thrive in this world is grown in the wild lands. And when we look for what's needed for food, fiber, and medicine, for habitat, and the spirit that moves through all these things, we look not just for ourselves, but for all of our allies, for the insects and the four-leggeds and the odonata, the dragonflies and everyone, we start to look that we as humans, right? The wind can prune trees, but if we can help steward a forest or a prairie to become more productive, not only for our animal friends, but for ourselves, then we can work back to this harmonious interaction with the landscape. My great mentor, Bill McDormand, um, the Rocky Mountain Sea Lions, was talking to me about the bison and how the only reason that there was an ability to have a million bison, as it were, was because 
not only were the forests being caretaken and stewarded to be prolific and super productive, but so were the animal habitats. What I'm trying to say is that the stewardship and caretakings of these wild lands can make this an abundant bounty. And when we put our lands back into that bountiful paradigm, then we can stop relying on all of this domesticated, cultivated, destructive form of agriculture that we've been relying on. Of course, I love the idea of citizen science and people collecting seeds, but I found in the herbal world and the mushroom hunting world that it's really easy for us humans to get really excited about something and over-harvest, whether it's out of good intentions or whether it's out of capitalistic consumer intentions. And I wonder how that relates to seed collection. What is an ethical way to harvest seeds? Because the last thing I'd want is for people to feel like they can help by collecting seeds, but actually be harming an ecosystem or harming the population of certain species. For example, with the conservation work that I was doing in Idaho, we would have to hike deep into the wilderness to find populations that were large enough that gathering 20% would yield 10,000 seeds, which is what the collection called for. Now, that is done with extreme respect and also the forager's credo, not only of right time, right place, right plant, but you never harvest all seed off of one plant or an entire population, especially when it's coming to these really endangered varieties, right? I mean, this is where like deep reverence and deep respect for these plants and these ecosystems come into play because it's a hard line. You're saying we're collecting this to preserve you in case your habitat's destroyed, but you are also taking seeds out of the natural environment, which means that you are taking on the responsibility of really safeguarding those or repropagating or multiplying them because each one of those embryos, as we've said, has thousands of generations of seeds that it can be produced going forward to future generations and also comes from however many thousands of generations of seed that's come before it. So seed saving, as much as I, in a very positive, enthusiastic way, promote it, it also needs to be matched and married with a deep respect and a deep reverence for what you're actually dealing with. It's the same thing we were talking about taking seeds out of the seed bank. Sometimes when you are requesting those seeds, those might be the last ones of that variety that exist because the underfunding of those seed banks is making it difficult to keep on doing those multiplications. So there is so much caretaking, so much stewardship and so much respect. So if you're going out to the wild lands, you should really have a very respectful intention, also the proper permission, and also a really strong plan of what the utilization of those seeds will be. And it, it really doesn't go without saying that there are laws and restrictions <laughs> that go along with seed cultivation, especially on wild or public lands. So Make sure you do your homework and make sure when you do collect that you have a very strong, clear pathway of what you intend to use those seeds for. I 
there was a place where all the beautiful people go to one by one they have their childish ways and that's the most purest form of being I'm falling in love with everyone I meet She was the most pure soul I would ever meet But then I found out there is more than one here Close to Mother Earth People hugging with the trees Taking care of one another One for all and all for one Now, you've been working on the reintroduction of the Southport Globe onion to its native soil in your hometown of Connecticut, and you were mentioning this at the beginning of our conversation, but if you could share more about the importance of native seeds being reintroduced to their origins, as well as the importance of reorienting places in terms of their agricultural and food histories. Sure, yeah. So, again... The Southport Globe Onion. So in terms of native, well, that seed originally came from England and then it went through the Connecticut River Valley and then was taken up by the Sherwoods and the Jennings and all of these intrepid onion farmers in Connecticut that actually pioneered a lot of the technologies and a lot of the tools that completely shifted how onion cultivation was done in our country. So what more than that being a native seed, it became a, a locally stewarded heirloom. And what that does is those are bioregionally adapted heirlooms that really are really productive in the lands where you live. So there's so much importance of understanding how to safeguard the crops that do well where you are for the future. I mean, if you think about stewarding varieties in our local landscape, And we talk about what that connection and what that dedication really looks like. I think of my friend Harriet, who lives on First Mesa up at Hopi. And Hopi blue corn is a corn that is able to have 
an amazing yield in soils that look like they are completely dry and drought ridden. And you think to yourself, how are these seeds able, without irrigation, without fertilization, able to produce this much in this landscape? And after in being in conversation, you realize that this seed has been selected and stewarded for those characteristics for a thousand years. So they plant their Hopi blue corn a foot into the soil. And then that corn now has the strength because most corns, our modern day corns, cannot grow through a foot of soil. And they wait in that soil for the monsoon rains. So when you think about connection and rebuilding that relationship, we think about the power and, and the ability, if we have time and attention to caretake these seeds locally, that they can adapt and thrive wherever we live. You know, there are people who now have watermelons growing in colder environments because after so many years of selection, you can, you can select for that one little one that does well and then you keep selecting. And that's the brilliance of seeds. Again, my mentor, Bill McDormand, he takes his iPhone, he takes in one hand and his seed in another hand, he says, which has greater technology? And you say, well, the seed, because for hundreds, if not thousands of years, it has the inherent technology to adapt to wherever it's planted and wherever it goes. And that's really quite an exquisite and extraordinary thing and something to really be revered. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And I love that question, that existential question that he puts out. (laughs) So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, so I've heard that somewhere around 12 crops make up 90% of our diet. So I'm curious to ask you about the role of diversifying our diet in context to seed and food sovereignty. How can we understand both diversifying our diet while keeping our bioregion in mind as part of the agreement between us and seed? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So there are over 30,000 edible plant species, and then we can even talk about ones that have medicinal values and food fiber and all of these different facets. But of those 30,000 edible plant species, we eat about 150 of them. And 12 of those crops make up 80% of our caloric intake. So basically, we're relying on less than 1% of the available food crops for our sustenance. And if you look at wheat, maize, and rice and potatoes, that comprises about 60% of our calories. So The real thing about that is like, folks, there are so many exquisite tastes out there, you know, and I think it's a really important point to say, well, what's growing in our bioregion? And if you look back to what the indigenous cultures of your lands were eating, there are amazing. We look back to like pawpaws and all these forgotten delicious fruits, the largest fruit of native North America. You look back and you say, there's such sustenance, there's such goodness, there's such yumminess to be had. If we can re-embrace and re-remember the little bit of a taste of bitterness, you know, we, kind of, we have to adapt. We have to, just like we need to rewild ourselves, you have to rewild your palate a little bit and kind of open yourself up to what's possible and what's palatable and what's delicious. And I think there are so many great options of, I mean, acorns. So quercophiles, right? Quercophiles, I mean that eats acorns. And if you look again, and this is harvesting with a real caretaker mentality, 
but acorn pancakes are delicious. These, and you know, there's a certain knowledge that goes along with figuring out how to process them and release the tannins and soak them in the rivers and such. But if we're actually trying to find regenerative solutions, it's going to take some relearning and some reskill sharing and working with nature rather than against it and re-embracing how we were in relationship with the lands around us. Because I can tell you from my work with the tracker school or primitive pursuits up in Ithaca and all these other places, when you're living with the earth that way, it is an absolute delightful and super respectful to the earth party. And, and I can't tell you what those, what those arts and those crafts and those tastes do for your gut flora and do for your mind and your energy and your heart and your spirit. And it's, um, it's a really beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> now, as we near our time, I'd love to ask you what you've learned from seeds in terms of patience, reverence for diversity, and the art of living. I haven't met a seed that I don't just absolutely fall in love with. You know, a seed, right? It has its seed coat on that, that that's protecting it from the elements. And it has its little lunch packed inside of it. It has its first meal already packed inside of its of its little seed coat and those little cotyledons those seed leaves are all packed in there if you can take a moment and you can hold seeds in your hand and really understand that they're these living breathing embryos right that an acorn can grow to a mighty oak that that tiny amaranth seed which is some of the highest protein can grow into a staple food crop and you just look and the intrinsic exquisite majesty that is held within these seeds and they just so patiently wait. Whole cultures have traveled with, you know, buckskin satchels of these seeds to go wherever their nomadic ways took them and they were able to bring their taste of place with them. A grandfather, Tom Brown's great mentor, would always bring a satchel of seeds wherever he went and when he found himself in a riparian area, he would look through and plant the right seeds for there and when he found himself in the drier the drier pine areas, he would plant the right seeds for there. So if we can always just carry seeds with us, and when that right time, that right place, that right eco-region or ecotone avails itself, can help steward that land to regeneration, then I think we look at the earth and realize the patience that it has with us. I mean, there are seeds that sleep in the soils for tens or hundreds of years until fire comes through because they need fire to germinate. Or, you know, the Methuselah, the date palm that was on the top of Masada, after 2,000 years it germinated. So if you want to talk about patience, you talk about really having that divine wisdom and that amazing kind of that inhale and that reverence for waiting for, I mean, if this is like an analogy to your own purpose and your own passion, to really germinating and breaking through your seed shell when the time is right and when the conditions are going to allow you to flourish. We talk as community that we prepare our soil, right? We want to prepare our soil to plant these edible forest gardens of thought, of community, of, of stewardship. And um, I'm just forever enamored and continue on the path of the seed because everywhere I go and everyone I interact with who has deep relationship with seeds have such majesty and wisdom. And that's really what it takes as caretakers of the earth. Cause I truly believe that 
all of these seed liberties, as I call them, that are running around the world are, are really holding the keys to resilience and to, and to a regenerative future. So with that, I just say save seeds because seeds save. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm. I love that. Well, perhaps in closing us out, you'd be willing to share one of the most cherished stories in your time spent as the seed huntress. When I was in uh, the Cook Islands, I was in Rarotonga, and I was with this beautiful woman who invited us onto her ancestral taro fields up in this gorgeous plateau of the mountains. And it's a culture where getting invited onto someone's land like that is really a massive honor. And I was sitting up in this area and she was there with her granddaughter and met, you know, just like everywhere else, a lot of the younger generation may not be so into working with the land or cultivating or eating those, those local wild plants and such. And she was so curious and she was in such wonder and just listening to everything that her grandmother said and taught her as the bubbling brooks of these taro fields and the dragonflies are flying around with mountains that looked like the, the cartoon Moana. I mean, earlier that day we had witnessed a true coronation of a king where the entire island had brought their taro as an offering and all cooked together. And it's really beautiful in, in these moments to see what the great paradigm of respecting our elders and having the younger generations be in conversation and in mentorship with them really looks like. And for me, it's always like I'm forever learning, I'm forever listening, and forever just joyful and grateful to be able to do this work because it's all just about sharing it for the future generations because we are the people of the pinch in this pinch of time where it is my exquisite duty and responsibility to safeguard all these seeds for all future generations. And so hopefully that's in the soils around the world and everyone can come partake in this wonderful celebration that is seed saving. Wow. Thank you so much, Sephra. This has been a beautiful conversation and I really do just pray that we get to collaborate on seed saving together for temperate rainforest ecosystems. So yeah, you've given me a lot to dream on. That would be so wonderful. I hope so much to do that. Thanks for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm audio producer Andrew Stores. The music you heard today was by Lot Valda, and our theme music is by Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank our host and founder, Ayana Young, as well as our entire podcast team who bring this show to you each and every week. On outreach and research, Francesca Glassbell, Aidan McRae, and Hannah Wilton. Podcast music, Carter Lou McElroy. Digital Community Organizing, Suzanne Dollywall and Aaron Wise. Graphic and Web Design, Erica Ekram and Melanie Younger with Partnerships and Media. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Through the canyons dark and wide. 
sounds of people talking, words of blue and gray, smells of doors and windows, closed against the day, sweet smell of the pie. 